Let's uh, pray as we prepare to open the word of God once more. Lord our God, this morning we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, who was born in Bethlehem so many years ago, who lived to teach and to heal, and then who was crucified raised on the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is coming back for us. And Jesus, we know your risen presence is with us right now. We are so thankful that you never leave us, even when we are faithless, you are faithful. Lord God, as we open your word, we pray for your power to be manifest and evident here this morning, that you would alter our courses in whichever way you want to, uh, that we would go out into the world afterwards having heard your word and glorify you in every way, Lord. We thank you for your transforming power that you are causing us to look more and more like Jesus Christ, the true image of God. Lord God, may you get glory and be magnified in this time and may we be encouraged and blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, last Sunday, if you were with us, we traveled through the first 14 verses of Daniel chapter 7. We walked through what we called the haunted house uh, in Daniel's dream, where we were confronted by those four scary-looking beasts, only to realize that all along, God was sovereignly in control of all of them at all times. We discovered that that God uses those beasts, those earthly kingdoms. He, He manipulates them in whatever way he wishes for his eternal, unchanging, and good purposes. And then at the close of that passage, we had the happy glorious entrance into the picture of the one we just sang about, the Ancient of Days, and the one like a son of man who rides on the clouds. Our final verse last Sunday was verse 14, if you were with us. That verse where the one like a son of man, the new Adam, Jesus the Christ, is is given there everlasting dominion and glory, and a kingdom, and he receives the worship of all peoples. Wow. What an exhausting vision this must have been for Daniel. There's so much going on in the vision of such an alarming and shocking nature that that any human being, I think, Daniel included, would be more or less wiped out, disoriented after having received it. Well, as we enter into this morning's passage, beginning at verse 15, and we encourage you to have your Bible open, immediately we can see here how, just how disturbing this vision had been for Daniel. He says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was what? Anxious. And the visions of my head alarmed me. Now, just to give us 
a second English rendering of the original Aramaic text here. Uh, this English version uses different English verbs. Here's how the Christian Standard Bible renders uh, the verse. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me, and the visions in my head, in my mind, terrified me. We need to see here that the revelation that Daniel has just received in this dream has come to him with almost overwhelming force and vividness. We need to try, if we can, to put ourselves in Daniel's shoes, just for a minute. Tremper Longman, in his commentary, describes it this way. He says, quote, Daniel, feature it, Daniel has just looked into the abyss of human evil, the beasts, and into the very throne room of God, the Ancient of Days, the One like a Son of Man. No wonder, says Longman, no wonder he is shaken by the experience, close quote. Indeed, Daniel is like Ezekiel here. After Ezekiel had received revelation from God in Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel had then sat overwhelmed by a canal for seven days. Because Ezekiel and Daniel were frail, very finite human beings, not unlike us, this experience of receiving revelation directly from God was shattering for both of them. So then what does Daniel do in his alarm and in his anxiousness? He approaches an angel. Verse 16, I approached one of those who stood there, an angel, and asked him the truth concerning all this. Daniel is at a loss. Daniel needs help to know what the vision was really all about. So, he says, the angel told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. And then in verses 17 and 18, friends, we get crystal clear clarity, crystal clear clarity from the angel as to what Daniel's vision was all about. The angel says to Daniel, these four great beasts in the vision that you were given are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And as we said last Sunday, the four beasts in succession in the dream most likely represent the kings and the kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, with the fourth representing ancient Rome, but well beyond ancient Rome, into our day and beyond our day. Verse 18, the angel continues, But the saints of the Most High, listen, shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom for how long? <laughs> forever, not only forever, but forever, forever and ever. <laughs> Amen. Now there are a couple of things for us to talk through here. First of all, notice that phrase there, the saints of the Most High. Now if you have the New International Version in front of you this morning, you might notice that instead of the word saints, it has holy people. 
holy people of the Most High. The group of people being described here are God's faithful people. In this verse, we need to note very carefully, it is God's faithful people, his holy ones who are the recipients of God's kingdom. It is God's people, his holy ones, who possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. But wait, you say, being the very accomplished Bible scholar that you are, didn't verse 14 have the one like a son of man receiving the everlasting kingdom? How can verse 18 say that God's faithful people receive the everlasting kingdom if the one like a son of man was already given that kingdom in verse 14? I suppose we might frame it as a question. Will the one like a son of man receive the everlasting kingdom, as in verse 14, or will the saints of the Most High receive the everlasting kingdom, as in verse 18? And the answer is yes. It's both. And friends, here we are touching on the great Hebrew conception of corporate representation. Listen. When the individual named David took a sling and a stone and killed the individual named Goliath, David in that moment was representing the corporate people of Israel and Goliath was representing the corporate people of Philistia. David's victory over Goliath was Israel's victory over the Philistines. Much later in David's life, another example, when David decided to undertake that ill-advised census, do you remember that? God's reaction was to strike not David, but Israel. And why? Because the individual named David was serving as the royal representative of the corporate people of Israel. And there are many places in the Bible where the king represents the greater nation, where the king represents the greater nation. As it goes with the king, so it goes for the nation for either good or for ill. This is the Hebrew conception of corporate representation. A further example is indicated very clearly in Romans chapter 5. The man Adam represented corporate humanity, as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, in and through Adam's fall, sin and death came to all who followed. His actions had consequences for a whole species. Well, in Daniel 7, the king, we need to understand, the one like a son of man, Jesus our Lord, represents his subjects, amen? As it goes with him, so it goes with us. When he receives the everlasting kingdom in verse 14, so we receive it with him and because of him, in verse 18, his mighty victory over the four beasts 
is our victory. Amen? His eternal reign on the new earth will be our eternal reign on the new earth. As the last Adam, Jesus will exercise his in-person, perfect, holy dominion, like the first Adam should have. Jesus will exercise his perfect, everlasting dominion. And so we will finally become, finally become the clear and the untarnished reflections of God that God intended, exercising that good and that happy dominion with him as our king. No more terrifying and ugly beasts will ever appear again because the new David and the last Adam has destroyed them forever. But let's move forward now to verses 19 and 20. Daniel is still rattled by the vision that he had in the night. Listen to what he says. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. Now, these two verses are interesting because here Daniel essentially, we have to notice, repeats every detail from verses 7 and 8 where the original report of his vision had been given. The orange highlighted parts there on the screen are all words and ideas that are repeated from verses 7 and 8 and the two underlined parts there in green are details that Daniel adds here in verses 19 and 20 that weren't in verses 7 and 8. But just look at how much he repeats all that orange there. I was thinking about this this week. I think sometimes when something, maybe you can testify to this, when something is particularly traumatizing to a person, that person will retell the trauma as a way to process it and to try to come to grips with it. Verse 15 already told us that Daniel was alarmed and he was anxious about the vision. Now he's retelling it. He's processing it. But he's also adding a couple details that weren't part of the original report of the vision. And Daniel here is particularly preoccupied with what? with that fourth beast in his vision, the one with the iron teeth and the ten horns and that other little creepy horn that emerged. Notice the description Daniel gives of that little horn at the end of verse 20. Watch this with me. He says that the little horn had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things and seemed greater than its companions. Now, there is something 
disquieting about this little horn. There is something sinister about this little horn. Sid Gradanus describes this little horn as being intelligent, the eyes tell us that, intelligent with a big mouth and a belligerent attitude. Intelligent with a big mouth and a belligerent attitude. John Lennox describes this horn as lacking a human heart, notably, and being a dreadful, evil, ruthless genius. We said last week that most likely this little horn is to be equated with the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness that both the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul talk about in the New Testament. This is that evil figure who will appear on the scene in the days just prior to the second coming of our Lord in the clouds. Verse 21, Daniel gives another new detail about this little horn, this antichrist, a, a detail that had not been included in his earlier report. He says, as I looked, this horn did what? Made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Now, Read by itself, this verse is not very hopeful at all, is it? This, this seems so very dire and so very severe. The little horn antichrist making war on God's people and prevailing over them, having victory over them. This is quite sobering, is it not? There will come a day, listen, according to this verse, there will come a day when it will certainly appear that God's people have been prevailed upon by the Antichrist. Where the Antichrist will appear to have triumphed. But friends, we must read verse 21 in conjunction with the verse that follows it. Verse 22, it's not there by accident, where we have the blessed word. Some words in Scripture are just blessed when you really drill down and meditate on them. The blessed word, until... The little horn made war against the saints and prevailed over them until... what? The Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for who? For the saints of the Most High, blessed be God. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Listen very carefully. The Antichrist's war against the saints of God and his apparent triumph over them will end at the promised moment when the Ancient of Days, when God comes with his Supreme Court judgment. Hallelujah. This is the sure blueprint of our future, my believing friends. 
But now I want us to notice something in verse 22. Many of us grew up, at least I did, I'm telling you my age, we grew up in the, the era of vinyl records. I know they're making a comeback now. But there was an A side, and then you would flip the record over, of course, to the B side, and you'd listen to that. One record with two sides. And verse 22 is like the music on the B side of the same record that also had an A side. And the A side is found back in verse 11. The A side of the story in verse 11 said that when the Ancient of Days came in judgment, what would happen? The fourth beast with all its horns, including the little horn, was what? Killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. That A side of the story gave details concerning the judgment that came against the little horn. But listen, in that very same moment of judgment, in that very same moment of judgment, there was also a B side that we get in verse 22. Same record, but the music on the B side is played differently than the music on the A side. At the same time, friends, at the same time that fiery judgment comes against the little horn, the A side, there is judgment in favor in favor of the saints in verse 22, the B side. The verse says that judgment was given for the saints, or perhaps even better in the New American Standard Bible, judgment was passed in favor of the saints. So simultaneously, God sovereignly, omnipotently, rules against the beast and its horns, verse 11, while ruling in favor of his kids, verse 22. The little horn's war against the saints is stopped dead in its tracks, and God, notice, gives the kingdom to the saints to possess. Glory be to God that his promises are sure. Do you know that? His promises are sure that his power knows no limits, that he loves his people with an undying, eternal love. He is for us, who, including the Antichrist, can be against us. But let's move forward in our passage to verse 23. Now the angel talks to Daniel, and Daniel has been very curious about the fourth beast. Thus he said, the angel said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour, how much of the earth? The whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. What I want you to notice here are the verbs of destruction. This fourth kingdom with, with every one of its horns, notice, will devour the whole earth. <laughs> right? Will trample down the earth. 
will, I can't break anything here, <laughs> will break the earth to pieces. What is being described here? What's being described is a wanton disregard for the earth and its inhabitants. This fourth beast, that is, as we said last week, prototyped in ancient Rome, but stretches forward through history up until the end of the time of the end, this is an evil earthly rule, an evil earthly kingdom that is all about demolition, wrecking, and dehumanization. Verse 24, the angel continues speaking to Daniel, who I think is still very shaken here. And he says, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. Now, of course, you and I know, if we've been in Christian circles for a while, there has been endless speculation about the precise identity of the ten kings who are mentioned here and the three kings who are put down by the little horn. But what I want you to notice very carefully, friends, is that the Bible, the Bible does not try to specifically identify precise identities for all these horns, and it's always a good practice for us to follow the Bible's lead. So I would say to you, let's resist the urge, and I know it's there for many of us, let's resist the urge to equate modern-day kings and modern-day kingdoms with each of these horns. We're on questionable ground if we try to do that. Instead, we need to focus on the things that Daniel is focused on here, namely the little horn on this fourth beast. And what we notice here is that this fourth ugly beast, it had been fairly unified in its nefarious purposes with its ten horns operating together until the little horn appeared and disrupted things, putting down three of the ten horns. There is a divisiveness that appears here in this fourth beastly kingdom. It makes us actually think back to Daniel chapter 2, where the fourth kingdom of iron is a divided kingdom. It says right in the text, a divided kingdom because its feet are made up of that impossible mixture of iron and clay. Dale Ralph Davis as he comments on this apparent divisiveness in the fourth kingdom, he says this, evil can never manufacture enough glue to keep itself together. It has no lasting cohesion. The dissension, he says, always seems to surface. Close quote. Indeed, with the appearance of the little horn, there comes fracture in the fourth beast, disorder. And then in verse 25, we get a description of the ugly things, the ugly things that the little horn of the fourth beast comes to do. Listen to this. He shall speak words against the Most High, 
and shall do what? Wear out. Wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now friends, we need to know this arch enemy, this ultimate enemy, this minion of the dragon. And it's prudent for us to walk slowly then through every phrase of this verse together. And as we do this, I'm going to be cross-referencing with certain passages in the New Testament. First of all, God tells us here in Daniel that the little horn, the Antichrist, shall speak words against the Most High. In other words, the mouth of the Antichrist will be full of blasphemy, full of contempt for God, full of evil insults toward God. Now, in Revelation chapter 13, and again in Revelation chapter 17, the Apostle John sees in his vision the same horned fourth beast that Daniel saw in Daniel 7. In Revelation 13, John sees a beast rising out of the sea, like Daniel did, and that Revelation 13 beast has ten horns, just like Daniel's fourth beast did, and just as the ten horns in Daniel 7 are ten kings, Daniel 7:24, so they are ten kings, in Revelation 13 also, as each horn in Revelation 13, 1, has a diadem upon it, a royal crown. But interestingly, in Revelation 13, and also in Revelation 17, this ten-horned beast has seven heads, which is a detail that is not included in Daniel's vision. But friends, in all three cases, in Daniel 7.25, in Revelation 13.1, and 13.5, and 13.6, and Revelation 17.3. In all these cases, the horned beast with its little horn is connected with blasphemy against God. It speaks words against the Most High, Daniel 7.25. It has blasphemous names on its seven heads in Revelation 13.1 and its mouth utters haughty and blasphemous words in Revelation 13.5. And in Revelation 13.6, it opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling. And then over in Revelation 17.3, again this ugly beast described there as a scarlet beast is full of blasphemous names. And we could also add here 2 Thessalonians 2.4 where the same Antichrist figure named the man of lawlessness by the Apostle Paul 
Paul says in that verse that this beastly figure blasphemously proclaims himself to be God. When the Antichrist arrives on the, on the scene, he will be characterized by insidious, wicked blasphemy against God. But returning to Daniel 7.25 again, what else does Daniel say as he describes for us this evil figure? He says next that this little horn will wear out the saints of the Most High. Back in verse 21, we were told that the little horn will make war with the saints and prevail over them. As Revelation 13.7 has it, this beastly antichrist will be allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. My friends, listen. The time of the antichrist will be characterized by great persecution against the church. The church in that day must steal itself steal itself with the sure and certain promises of Scripture. That God will indeed bring an end to the Antichrist's temporary reign. That our champion, Jesus Christ, will come back. That the fourth beast will be burned with Fire thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 19:20. Or as 2 Thessalonians 2:8 has it, the Lord Jesus will kill the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The church must stand firm on the certain promise also that the kingdom will be given in the end to the saints who will reign forever with the Son of Man on the new earth. Amen? <laughs> he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. Now notice that wording very carefully. Shall think to change the times and the law. The Antichrist will at least make an attempt to alter the times and change God's law. Now, in trying to change the times, does this mean that the little horn will try to wipe out holy days that believers observe? and replace those days with blasphemous observances. Perhaps. Or maybe it means that the little horn will attempt to change the times in the sense of somehow trying to escape God's decreed time for the little horn's rule. Or maybe it means both. But this word here about the Antichrist changing the law, I think this might catch our contemporary attention a little bit. In our day, there seems to be a concerted effort 
to jettison God's law out of society altogether, to abandon it, to disregard it, with the aim that a new morality will emerge that is decidedly antichrist, anti-God. Now granted, the man of lawlessness may not be on the scene quite yet, but as Paul puts it in 2 Thessalonians 2.7, he says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Already, as believers in Jesus, in the nation of Canada, we face unprecedented challenges to religious freedom and freedom of conscience. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The final part of verse 25 is, I think, both unsettling and also reassuring. Unsettling because it promises that God's people will end up in the hand of the little horn. But reassuring because God, we need to understand, is in full control of the proceedings. Yes? Notice, the saints shall be given into the little horn's hand. Given by who? By the sovereign God. Listen, in Job chapter 2, verse 6, God says to Satan, Behold, Job is in your hand. Only spare his life. So just as God allowed Job to fall into Satan's hand, but only for a season that God determined with parameters that God laid down, so the saints shall be given into the little horn's hand. With Revelation 13.5 and 13.7 in mind, the little horn will be allowed to exercise authority over the saints, but friends, only for a specific amount of time, which in this case is described as a time times, and half a time. Or in Revelation 13, 5, a period of 42 months. The point here, though, is that God supreme, we need to understand, he supremely exceeds the little horn in authority. Amen? God supremely exceeds the little horn in authority. God sovereignly sets limits on the little horn Antichrist. The Antichrist will only have the saints in his evil hand for a time, times, and half a time. Verse 26. It's ramping up here, but the court shall sit in judgment. Which court? The heavenly court. And his dominion, the Antichrist's dominion, shall be what? Taken away by who? By Almighty God to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Saints of God, we have this blessed assurance here from God himself that the destroyer will end up with his own kingdom permanently destroyed. Verse 27, a tremendous verse that just, I think, drips with the victory of the Lamb. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom 
shall be an everlasting dominion and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now notice, can you see here in the first half of the verse that it's all about God's people receiving the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven. But in the second half there, there's this sudden shift to him, right? And to his, his kingdom shall be an everlasting dominion and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So this verse again, friends, we need to see organically connects the son of man, the king of kings, Jesus, with his people. As it goes for the king, so it goes for the people. His great victory is our great victory. As Dale Davis puts it so concisely, he says, quote, the servants have no kingdom apart from their king, and the king does not reign without his servants. Jesus just cannot stand being separated from his people. Close quote. Yes, my friends. He will never separate himself from us. And nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, I love our final verse this morning because it shows Daniel to be a frail human being like we are. And it also shows that Daniel is a feeling, empathic sort of person. He says here, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts, what? He's still greatly alarmed. My, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. Probably the blood had drained out of Daniel's face after this whole experience with this vision. But, he says, I kept the matter in my heart. Any, any, doesn't matter who you are, any finite human being who receives a vision from God like the one Daniel did would be shaken to the core. And Daniel is shaken to the core. He's greatly alarmed. The blood has drained out of his face. The, the sights of the four frightening beasts would be alarming. The vision of God's throne room, I think, would sort of overload a person's ability to cope. But add to that the element of the little horn warring against Daniel's people, persecuting God's people until the time limit set by God ran out and the beast was judged. No wonder Daniel is shaken here. But friends, in 2023, almost 2024 now, you and I are in a most blessed position. Did you know that? We have the entire closed canon of Holy Scripture, the whole Bible, where Daniel did not. We have all the details, all the details that God has seen fit to provide concerning the entire sweep of all history from the time of Adam to the time of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. We know exactly how the story of this world has gone, how it is going, and how it will go. And we know how utterly determined God is 
I want you to hear that. How utterly determined God is to reach His goal and His purpose for all things. God will bring to pass every single thing that He has promised. As the founder of the Navigators, Dawson Trotman, once said, God is a lot more interested in getting His job done than you and I are. (laughs) Yes, thank goodness. How true that is. God is sovereignly determined to bring all things to His ordained and decreed conclusion. It will happen. And so even as we see what appears to be disintegration and great trouble in this world, even as it sure looks like oftentimes that the beast's kingdom is triumphing, we take heart. Believer, take heart. Our good shepherd, our divine warrior and king, our son of man, the crucified, resurrected, ascended, and soon coming Lord Jesus Christ, has prevailed over every beast, is prevailing over every beast, and you guessed it, will prevail over every beast. I close now by reading you a short paragraph that greatly encouraged me in my study this week. This is from the biblical scholar Sid Gradanus, and he says this, I want you to listen to this, quote, Take heart. Things are not what they seem. God is still sovereign. He is still in control. True, he he still allows evil human kingdoms to exist and even to harass and persecute God's people. At the end of time, he will even allow the Antichrist to decimate his church. But don't give up hope. Deliverance is near. When the persecution reaches its climax... God will step in and judge the nations. He says he will totally destroy the wicked human rulers and kingdoms, and then he will establish his perfect kingdom on earth. He will give this perfect kingdom to his son, Jesus Christ, and to those who follow him. A wonderful future awaits God's people. How blessed is our assurance Believer in Jesus Christ, by his substitutionary sacrificial death, he has made peace between you, believer, and the Holy Father. And this morning is the second week of Advent, the week of peace. I want you to live in his peace this week as you hide this word from Daniel 7 in your heart. He has won and he will win no matter what we see happening in this world, our blessed future with our King is assured. Take heart, my friend, and may His peace be with you. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we we are so thankful, Lord, for this mighty, breathtaking chapter of Scripture and all the assurances it gives us, all the reality It prophesies for us. Lord, you did not shrink from giving us reality. But Lord, you have also promised, and we know it will be true, that you will win. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us undeserved grace. We are 
demerited sinners, and we thank you that you have seen fit to save us and rescue us and bring us with you into the new heavens and new earth. We give you thanks this day in Jesus' name. Amen.